0: This season of On the Contrary by IDR is supported by Hindustan Unilever Foundation, or HUF, a private foundation that supports and amplifies scalable solutions around India's diverse water challenges. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR, a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. We hear differing perspectives from leaders and experts as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our
1: time. Here's your host, Smarinita Shetty. India is the largest user of groundwater in the world, with more than 80% of our population depending on it either for drinking water or for irrigation and agriculture, making it a lifeline for many citizens in the country. When we talk about groundwater we are essentially talking about the water that is found below the Earth's surface. It acts as a critical buffer against the variability of monsoon rains, which have become even more unpredictable due to climate change. In large and small cities, we're also seeing residents begin to rely more and more on groundwater due to unreliable and inadequate municipal water supplies. Essentially, we're a groundwater economy. We also have a groundwater problem. Over-extraction of water over the years is threatening the overall water security in the country. What makes this resource even more difficult to manage is that it is invisible to the naked eye. And often, what is out of sight is out of mind. Chatting with us today on the state of India's groundwater and to discuss what's happening on the policy side and what's shifting in practice are our two guests, Mala Subramanyam and Dr. Himanshu Kulkarni. Mala is the CEO of Argyam a foundation that takes a data-driven approach to helping transform India's water and sanitation systems. Her work focuses on mapping out a sustainable water security journey for governments, nonprofits, and communities. Dr. Himanshu leads Aquadam, a knowledge institution and a think tank on groundwater. A hydrogeologist by qualification, he has been actively involved in the advocacy for stronger programs on groundwater management in India for close to four decades. Mala, coming to you first, could you talk a little bit about the level of understanding that both governments as well as communities have about groundwater and the role that it plays in India's water security?
2: So I think, you know, if I look back at, you know, before a decade when I joined the sector, then groundwater was a much neglected, much misunderstood, ununderstood resource. There was not much mainstream attention that it got either from policy or in practice. But if I kind of trace the journey over the decade, I think that situation is very different now, thanks to the pioneering work that um, the community of practitioners has done. Today, I don't think there is a policy discussion in water security in India that doesn't call for the importance of maintaining and restoring and conserving groundwater. So I think there is a seminal shift, at least on the policy front and a lot of uh, good reforms and governance in terms of intent has been expressed either in the form of states attaching funds and programs or at the national level where we have the Ataljal Yojana which is a large seven-state program that is intended to bring communities and groundwater and build water security through local planning and understanding of groundwater. There is a lot of understanding that uh, people at the front line, Jan. Anguards, Jal Surakshaks, Jal Duds are required to manage groundwater. They are central to many large programs. The role of Panchayati Raj institutions in understanding groundwater. So I think the ground has shifted a lot in the right direction. There is a lot more that needs to happen. But in terms of just the shift in policy, I think that's quite tremendous. What about the communities themselves? What does their understanding of water look like today? I wouldn't probably say that the understanding of communities as such and the engagement of communities as such is probably where it needs to be. There are many reasons for that. I think as communities, the sense of ownership of local resources and the ability and agency probably there's a lot of gap there and that needs to be built. And I guess a lot of these programs are bringing that back because I think that abdication has happened that, you know, someone needs to manage this and give me water and therefore the sort of disconnect between local resources and the ability to manage. So I would probably say that there is a gap there that needs to be filled. But then again, we need to look at what are the incentives that can make that happen. And I think a lot of these programs intend is to do that. The how of it is the question and I guess we need to probably look at that and explore that a bit.
1: Himanshu, you work extensively with communities as well. Do you agree with what Mala is saying that a lot more needs to happen when it comes to engaging people in the groundwater crisis?
3: Smarnita, yes, I completely agree with what Mala has just said. I would actually go on to add another dimension which is coming out through how communities question uh, the government how communities are actually coming forward to seek answers to some of their questions. And I think the questions are different. So if I actually paraphrase the questions that communities were asking me as a researcher 40 years ago and what they are asking us as an organization in the field uh, 40 years hence, which is now, I think the questions are completely different. Let me give you an example. 40 years ago, the questions were around, you know, where do I site a well or a borehole or a tube well in my piece of land? Can I bring a water diviner or should I go to a scientist? That's a question from 40 years ago. It's not as if people are asking the same question now. Maybe 15 years ago, the question was very different. You know, our wells are drying up and we are putting in deeper and deeper wells, deeper and deeper boreholes, And with that comes a different set of problems. How do we resolve this problem? Is it climate change? Is it something that we are doing? And now, for instance, there are questions like, is there some relationship between the extraction of groundwater in our region and the drying up of rivers that flows through our villages? Or for that matter, something like, are we extracting too much? And is our extraction affecting our groundwater quality in some way or the other? So, If you just look at these set of questions across a 40, 50-year period, I think the problems are different, the crisis is, is upon us. But I think it has, if not anything else, it has brought groundwater into the limelight of discussions on water, discussions on agriculture, discussions on the overall growth, development and sustainable solutions around water. But more than anything else, I think these discussions are progressing towards The interface between groundwater and the environment. And I think that is a positive sign. It harbors well in terms of going forward.
1: Himanshu, you just spoke about the connection between water and agriculture, and I want to come back to that. We know that agriculture is one of the biggest consumers of groundwater in India. And for a country where a large population practices and depends on farming, this is a huge cause for concern. So how should we be thinking about managing the use of groundwater in agriculture, while also ensuring farm productivity and output?
3: Very often this question takes me back to my school education. And, you know, we are taught in schools, and I think we continue to be taught in schools about the three basic needs of life. And we were taught roti, kapda and makan. We were never told about water and air. Now, even if you look at these three elements, for me, they represent almost three sectors. Roti is agriculture. Kapda is also agriculture. But kapda is really the interface of agriculture and industry. And it some ways represents industry. And Makan is really about urban, dominantly about urban. Now, why are we singling out agriculture as the biggest user of water when roti and food is the biggest need next to water and air? Not all agricultural water comes from external use or artificial use. A lot of agriculture depends on rain. So, there is a significant amount of agriculture which is rain-fed agriculture. Now, what is interesting in agriculture is over the last 70 odd years, the share of groundwater in irrigated agriculture has gone up as compared to the share of surface water. So, at the time of independence, we were using about 65% of surface water resources and only about 35% of groundwater resources. Now it's 70% of groundwater use in agriculture and 30% surface water. I mean, these are broad numbers, but this flip is very alarming. And I think we should look at this flip more carefully. We need a reform in the way we use groundwater in agriculture, fundamentally because the groundwater crisis groundwater depletion leads to a larger and larger energy footprint. I think at the moment, our agriculture productivity or our agriculture is about cropping systems that require larger volumes of water. We need to flip this around and we need to look at crop and crop productivity from a water conservative index. So what are the crops that we can produce in the minimum amount of water? And I believe there's a lot of discussion going on in the agricultural sector, in economics today. The question about millets this year is, I think, a promising one. So your production per unit of water and the income returns per unit of water are likely to see a much better index than ever before. So that's uh, more or less on the agriculture side.
2: Mala? I think the problem is water, but the solution is at the intersection of water and all the things that we talked about, right? Agriculture, energy, urban, but there's very little investment in solving at the intersection. There's no such thing as water for water. It's water for livelihoods, water for health, water for climate change, water and energy together for betterment, etc. When you say water agriculture, it's basically water for livelihoods, right? When you say water and housing, it's water for better urbanization. And water and quality is really for better health. And then water and lesser emissions is for better climate change. So what I'm trying to say is water for water's sake, while we kept looking at it like that, perhaps there's an expiry date on that sort of thinking. And really, we need to look at water for what, And then the questions arise is, what is the equation between water and agriculture? How do we look at the trade-off? Who decides, right? And therefore, you know, when you scale something that is not looking at intersections, you're probably going to have a problem that explodes at scale, right? So you would want to understand that before you do that.
1: I think that's an extremely important point. Because, you know, if you talk about livelihoods in the absence of water, or if you talk about energy in the absence of water, you aren't going to get the complete picture. Which also brings me to my next question. Because water is so integral to everything we do, different sectors, various industries and a range of people need to be involved when it comes to managing our depleting groundwater, right? Mala, could you speak a little bit about who these different actors are in the water sector and what will it take for them to work together?
2: I mean, I think the actors at the gross level, it is the government, it is the markets and it is civil society. So the question really is in how do we sort of design better? How do we leverage what is already available and which is being used for various other things, but not apparently for social impact? How do you bring all of that, right, in terms of thinking at population scale, bringing the digital support that is allowing us to do so many things differently and different things at scale and bring it to the sector, what does it take to bring new age thinking and new age technology? I mean, if you look at anything, it's 30, 40 years old, a lot of the things. And yet what we are saying is with the input side will tweak a little bit linearly, but somehow on the output side, we want magic to happen. I mean, we want 100x kind of returns in terms of it's not going to happen. So in some sense, I feel like we really need to sit back and design this better, understand the strengths of various stakeholders, understand what is missing and we can bring from the for-profit sector, and then put it all together in ways that the program actually is designed for next-gen. And we have to recognize it's not happening. I think that's the first step. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR. We'll be right back after this break. When I training, I that the training was the best. The was health
0: That was Archana Mani, a mentor for women farmers in Marathwada, a drought-pruned region in Maharashtra. While women have been cultivating land for decades, less than 2% of India's agricultural land is owned by women. They are seen as labourers and not farmers. Archana works with Swayam Shikshan Prayog, an organization that decided to change this scenario by helping women negotiate with their families for titles to land which they use to cultivate nutritious and climate resilient crops like millets and leafy vegetables. She also helps women set up businesses, such as poultry farming and producing wormy compost. According to Archana, these women are now able to ensure food and nutrition security for their families water security for their land and prosperity for their communities learn more about Archana Mani on idr's ground up a segment that features anecdotal multimedia stories that provide an insight into how communities experience development at the grassroots
2: and now back to the show
1: himanshu hey could you speak a little bit about the different actors involved in the water sector and how they can play an important role going forward?
3: I think we know who the actors are. But I think bringing in the community in a stronger way, as an equal partner, rather than as a stakeholder or as a beneficiary, which is typically the fashion, I think becomes important in the water sector. Because participatory groundwater management, I believe even more strongly in this than, say, 10 years ago. I think you can achieve participatory groundwater management only and only if the community is made an equal opportunity partner, as the phrase goes. Now, whether we are doing it is, of course, a big question. And my answer to that question is no. Now, the reason I'm saying it is if we are to solve it at a variety of intersections, as Mala rightly put it, then we also need to customize it. We need to customize the model of partnerships, of collaborations, and even take partnerships and collaborations to the idea of cooperation. Because we still are afraid to deal with the word cooperation. But I think without cooperation, and most successful models in the development sector, finally, what? where is your daily success? It comes from a cooperative. So, Why can't we actually think about water management through a cooperative model? There has to be something of a caring and sharing concept within the water sector. And imagining that concept at a variety of intersections becomes important. The other point I want to add is on trade-offs. And I think there are many, many trade-offs, but I think the biggest trade-off is really between what has come as a legacy to us through a system of traditions and how do we look at the future through the lens of innovation, through the lens of technology. I'll just end with an example. So, you know, I was witness to a period where almost thousand-year-old systems of water extraction from wells, which were the rehats in large parts of India, the chadas in Rajasthan or the moat here in Maharashtra almost completely vanished. I'm not saying that they vanished completely. There are still areas in India where people operate Rehats. Why are they doing it? And what have we learned from this technology which we are using today? My answer to that question is nothing. So we brought in the submersible pump, we brought in a huge revolution in the pump industry, but did the pump industry learn from this age old tradition which sustained so many thousand years? I'm not talking about the glorification of tradition here. I'm actually talking about extracting the science from that tradition and embedding it into the so-called innovations of modern day. When we look at the future, we have to be very, very careful when we look at modern technologies, including artificial intelligence. Because without the fundamentals of science, in a world which is technology-driven... I think we will end up in bitter chaos. So who
1: needs to take the reins and steer all of this?
3: I don't think we need a leader. I think the leadership model itself is a problem, particularly in in solving this. I think if we were able to look at a customized version of what people can do collectively, because in the urban sector, what collective efforts and what cooperation would mean around groundwater would be very different from what you would do in a village in Maharashtra versus what you would do say in a village in Assam. I also believe that taking the lead or beginning an effort doesn't necessarily have to come from the government. It could come or it could be catalyzed by different actors. I also think that it's already happening. There are some which are driven by large programs like the Atal Jal Yojana but there are others which are driven from the ground and that's where I will add to what Mala was saying that I think we need two sets of initiatives or imperatives. One is scaling out the successful models in multiple locations and at the same time working on the ground at smaller sort of resolutions, at higher resolutions, but very, very local efforts in one, two, three, ten different locations which work on innovative ideas.
1: Both of you have spoken about what we can do more of. And you touched upon various examples of how we can start. But is there something that you'd like to see less of, Mala? So
2: I think I would probably position it differently. The way I think of it is we all say and we all agree that this is an unprecedented problem. But I think our response is kind of looking for precedented responses. I feel like the solutioning space is not as unprecedented as the problem space is. So I feel like that needs to change. And so we need to make big shifts in terms of making big, bold bets in what needs to be done differently and uh, what are some different things that we need to do, which really needs to come with a bigger risk appetite from funders, from practitioners, from even the community and citizens. Because, I mean, the problem is outpacing our collective uh, ability to solve, right? So some things have to give, right? Status quo is not an option. And while there is huge intent um, there is no lack of intent. Action on how to convert that intent into actual outcomes on the ground, that is, I feel like that's where we all need to spend some time. And if it needs different, um, you know, risk capital to come in, different design of programs to come in, different structures, different incentives, in ways in which you can underwrite this, because what is a bigger bet to solve for then this problem of uh, water, climate change, livelihoods, public health, right? How can we say this is not a big enough problem for all of us to think about, right? And also in terms of sort of start to think of where is our focus and time going? A lot of it, I feel, is going into problem articulation, probably a little less of that and more on how do you solve for it. We all know the problems, but coming together to say what we did so far is not going to get us further to solve this problem. So how do we think differently? What of the past do we retain, but what we do we also do differently? I think that is the part that I feel needs to happen much more structuredly, much more collaboratively. And, you know, we need to all facilitate each other to do that. Now, the problem is now. If we don't do it now, it would be a huge lost opportunity not to speak of the impact that will have in terms of inaction and non-delivery on the ground.
1: So what you're saying is that we should talk less about the problem and focus more on the solutions. Manchu, what do you think we need to do less of? What do we need to do differently?
3: I would actually try and answer the second part of your question first. What should be done differently? I think we need more people in problem solving than what we have at the moment. Our bandwidths are simply stretched. And I think no measure of technology can replace the bandwidth of people that we require. We will need technology. But I think technology alone will not solve the problem. We need people on the ground. People can think like people. The second point is we need a diverse set of people to work on a problem. We need a transdisciplinary approach to the problem because it's not about groundwater depletion or groundwater contamination alone. It's about multiple challenges that come with that. So transdisciplinary approaches. And the third is we need big right investments. It's not just about investing. It's about the right investment and it's about the investment at scale. And I'm not just talking about money here. So these are the three points where we should think differently. Now, what should we think less about? And I would say, what should we think lesser and lesser and lesser about? I think even at the moment, the large solutions that are touted are extremely piecemeal. They are oversimplified and they trivialize the complexity of the problem. I've often... You know, seen people talk to me that, what is groundwater recharge? Groundwater recharge is simply about pushing more and more water into the ground. If we push more and more water into the ground, we'll solve this problem. But is that effective? Is it enough? I think our solutions are still ingrained on the supply side. Now, we want to augment, we want more, we want to put in more, we want to therefore extract more or sustain that excessive extraction. And that's where it ends. It's called the low-hanging fruit. When are we going to stop picking the low-hanging fruits and really address the core of the problem?
1: When it comes to India's groundwater problem, one thing is clear. The time to act is now. We are past the stage of trying to articulate the problem. It is time for all of us, whether it's governments, markets or civil society, to act on the solutions. Most importantly, We must understand that the solution to India's groundwater problem ultimately rests in the hands of the people who interact with it on a daily basis and we must view them as equal partners. Thank you, Mala, and thank you, Himanshu, for joining us today.
0: On the Contrary by IDR is produced by Rajita Vora, Smarinita Shetty, Sneha Philip, and me, Shreya Adhikari. Additional support from Halima Ansari. Production by Made in India If you like our show please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast from so more people can find out about us You can also email us on write to us at idronline.org, or find us on Facebook Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn Thank you for listening and see you next week